Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this morning uh, to the Gospel of Mark. And we are turning to Mark chapter 7 and uh, beginning our reading at verse 31. Mark chapter 7 at verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This morning we are looking at another one of the miracles uh, that Jesus performed uh, during his earthly ministry. But when we look at the miracles of Jesus, it is important that we bear in mind something about the purpose of the miracles of Jesus. And it is good to think about one of the striking statements that is recorded in the Gospels at the end of John's Gospel. John tells us that his gospel was not intended to give us an exhaustive account of the things that Jesus did. He highlights, in fact, that he only tells us some of the things that Jesus did. That the purpose of the gospel was simply to highlight the works that communicate the significance of Jesus' coming. And so there was a selection uh, that John and the other gospel writers used in order to communicate the identity and the work of the Lord Jesus. That's important to, to bear in mind because when we think about the works of Jesus, Jesus did many miracles and he did many more miracles than we even realize in the Gospels. But what the Gospels are highlighting are something about what Jesus did in order to help us understand the why of his coming. They are signs, in other words, that point beyond themselves. And that's important because sometimes people may raise objections or they may raise questions. Why didn't Jesus do this kind of miracle? Why didn't Jesus do that kind of a miracle? And the short answer is, is that he may have. But the miracles that are accounted for in the Gospels are meant to convey something about his redemptive work. They are highlighting Jesus' redeeming uh, work in a way that points beyond the physical act themselves. And that's true even here uh, with this miracle of healing a deaf man. The Gospels make a point, and Jesus himself tells John the Baptist that the deaf hear, uh, that the blind see. But Mark's Gospel is the one Gospel that really dwells on the healing of a deaf person and gives concentration of how it is that Jesus heals this one deaf person in particular. And so we want to give our attention to it. 
It tells us there in verse 31 that Jesus returned from the region of Tyre. That is a region that is west of Galilee and north of Galilee. So it's along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. It was a a region that was originally allotted to the tribe of Asher. But uh, Jesus moved on from Tyre and he goes further north uh, along the coast to a place called Sidon. And that is really beyond uh, Israel's territory. And then he moves uh, back towards the Decapolis. And so what we are seeing is something of a a horseshoe pattern that is being accounted for here of Jesus's travels. But as he comes to the Decapolis, uh, he comes as someone who is uh, becoming well known. We've already uh, heard of Jesus in the Decapolis. You remember he healed a person who was demon-possessed. And that afterwards, that person who had been healed went and proclaimed Jesus' works to the people in the region. And so by this time, as Jesus comes, his fame really does precede him. And when he comes, we're told that people came to him bringing a man who was deaf and had a difficulty speaking. Uh, He had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And this morning, we want to look at this uh, miracle to see that because Jesus' works are wonderful, uh, we are to marvel at them. And we want to look at this miracle in two thoughts. We want to think about the miracle itself, and then we want to think about the reaction of marveling over it. Well, first, there is the miracle. We mentioned that uh, this is... Um, a miracle that has given um, particular attention in Mark's gospel. But what really stands out about uh, this miracle is the detail that is given. Uh, Sometimes uh, the miracles that Jesus performs are very uh, direct and immediate. Jesus says the word or Jesus puts out his hand and touches a person and they are healed. But here we're given lots of detail about the manner in which Jesus went about healing this person. In fact, you can highlight six details uh, in the way that Jesus went about it. And some of those details might strike us as a bit odd, um, but they're all conveying something significant. The first thing that we are told is, is that Jesus put his fingers in his ears. And this man who was deaf, Uh, is living with the consequences of being unable to hear. And so his his ears would be a source of not only uh, frustration that he cannot hear, but also a source of shame uh, that what he does not have and others enjoy is a a source that is going to be a constant reminder of him, of his own uh, malady, of his own uh, uh, problem. But Jesus here puts his fingers into his ears, that Jesus is actually identifying with this man's shame, with this man's frustration, with this man's ailment in a way that identifies with him with compassion, showing that Jesus doesn't simply heal at a distance, but that Jesus actually comes alongside this man and identifies with his condition. The second detail that we're told is is that Jesus spit. Um, which also might strike us as a bit odd. Uh, But this isn't the only miracle where Jesus actually spits in the outworking of the miracle. There are other miracles, including a blind man, that Jesus also uses spit uh, in the process. Again, it might strike us as strange, and some commentators point out that 
uh, it wouldn't be as strange for people living in the ancient Mediterranean world. Uh, that saliva was something that was used in medical practice. But whatever the case may be, uh, there is something that is being communicated here, isn't there? By spitting, Jesus is still visualizing. He is still able to communicate with this man who cannot hear. Jesus is still getting through to this man who cannot speak well. And so where there is a barrier, Jesus is still able to overcome it. He is communicating with this man in a way that he understands that he is going to be the source of his healing, that he is going to remove this ailment from him so that he is no longer uh, bound by it, that Jesus is coming alongside and identifying with him. And so we are told these details uh, in part, uh, it seems, to highlight that Jesus is getting through to this man about what he is about to do. He is identifying with this man's condition and he is going to be removing that which is unclean in him, that which is an ailment to him. But the third thing we are told is, is that he touched his tongue. Just as his, the organs of hearing did not work on this man, neither does the organ of speech. And just as Jesus extended himself to touch the man's ears, so he actually reaches out and touches the man's tongue as well. Fourthly, we are told that he looked up to heaven and he sighed. Uh, looking up uh, to heaven is uh, the practice of turning and concentrating on God. It is the act of prayer, isn't it? That it is the natural way of acknowledging God. And so Jesus here, as he is about to heal this man, is bringing the matter before God in prayer. And he is sighing. The word there for sighing can also be the word translated as groaning. It is a, a strong expression for human lament. Uh, a person sighs or groans. Maybe we sigh uh, because we're having a difficulty breathing or maybe just because we're tired. But when a person is groaning, uh, they're doing so because they're in a condition that they cannot change themselves. Uh, to groan under something is to be in a condition that we are helpless to change. So, for instance, in the Old Testament, we are told that Israel was in Egypt and they were living in slavery. And as they were in slavery, it tells us that they were groaning. And they were groaning unto God and that God heard their groans. He heard their sighs and that he sent them Moses, that he himself would deliver his people from Egypt. But here it says that Jesus groaned. And Jesus is groaning not because he's helpless to do anything, but rather Jesus, as he is looking unto the Father, as he is bringing this before God in prayer, as Jesus is identifying with this man's condition, Jesus is bringing this man's groans before the Father. That he is so identifying with this man, he is showing compassion on this man's condition, that he is bearing his sighs, he is bearing his groans uh, before the Father himself. All of this showing his empathy and his identifying with the man. So there is the putting his fingers in his ears, there's the spitting details, there's the touching of his tongue, there's the looking up to heaven, the sighing, and then finally there is the speaking, where he said in verse 34, Ephatha, that is, be opened. The very word that Jesus used 
perhaps the first word that this man ever heard uh, is the word that is used here and is an impressive or a memorable statement that is recorded. Uh, so Jesus speaks and it is so. The man's ears are opened and his tongue is unloosed or released so that he is able to speak. So it is a, a, a powerful uh, miracle, uh, but it, it is not simply an impressive display of Jesus's power. There's a reason why Mark includes this miracle in his gospel, and it's because of what it signifies. It has a meaning that goes beyond itself. And so as with every miracle that Jesus does, we're asking, what does this miracle convey? What is Jesus doing in this miracle? Yes, he healed that man, but Mark is trying to highlight something for us. The Spirit is trying to teach us something through that miracle. And we begin to see something of the importance of the miracle in what is described about this man's condition. If you go back in verse uh, um, uh, 32, it tells us in describing the man that he, had, uh, he was deaf and he had a speech impediment. That word speech impediment, uh, great difficulty in speaking, is a rare word in scriptures. In fact, it's only found here in Mark 7 and once in the Old Testament when it was translated into Greek. And it's that passage that we read in Isaiah 35 where it speaks about the mute being able to speak. In Isaiah, in those chapters preceding Isaiah 35, it talks about God's judgment coming on the nations and on Israel. That God is going to bring his judgment on the land. For instance, in Isaiah 34, it says, For the Lord is enraged against the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction. Again, in chapter 34, it says, For the day of the Lord is a day of vengeance, a day of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Eden shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur, and her land shall become burning pitch. The imagery there in chapter 34 is the nations are going to be brought under judgment. And the way in which the picture is presented is a land in which it becomes desolate that it will be devastated and there will be no princes there. It goes on and it makes that point that the land would be taken from the princes and given over to the wild animals, to the hawks and to the, uh, to the uh, owls and the, the, the animals, the wildlife. There will be no princes over the land because they will be so devastated. Similarly, Israel itself was described as coming under God's judgment. They would become like a wilderness. But when you come to Isaiah 35, there's a distinct shift in the tone of Isaiah's message. Now, as is so often the case in scripture, after warning of God's judgment, there is a mention of a word of salvation. And in Isaiah 35, we see that shift now to talking about God's salvation. At the beginning of 35, it says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. And so the picture is one of a land that becomes devastated, abandoned, burned. People and their kingdoms are removed. It is a desert. 
But then that desert becomes a sign of new life. There will be new life. There will be a transformation. It will blossom like the crocus. It will grow abundantly. There will be joy once again. This is the message that Isaiah is ultimately conveying. And as he highlights that, he says, well, how do you know that this transformation is going to come? And the transformation is based on the fact, behold your God. Your God will come with vengeance and with recompense and your God will save you. And so this whole message of transformation is wrapped up in the idea that God is going to come and God is going to intervene into your situation to bring about blessing. And so this this expectancy is building after judgment or in light of God's judgment, there is still hope by looking to God for salvation. And it is pointing to the fact that God himself will come this transformation. And how is it that God will come? What is the sign of God's coming? It said there back in Isaiah 35, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like the deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. There's that word, the mute. Those who cannot speak will sing for joy. What's the sign of transformation when your God comes? How will that transformation work itself out when those who couldn't speak now sing? That'll be the change. And so when we look at this miracle that Jesus did, yes, Jesus did something good. He, he healed this man who was under an ailment of being unable to communicate. He healed this man's suffering. But the miracle is intended to communicate something beyond that. It's showing something of God's works being realized. It's showing the salvation of God being fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. That Jesus is once again fulfilling the role of God as he is bringing the transformation and new life uh, through his works. You see, scripture itself teaches uh, that we are all like one who is deaf. Um, that we ourselves are uh, likened to the condition of this man that is pictured here. Uh, The deaf person is meant to picture our spiritual condition and the work of God on our souls. Uh, We are like those who do not hear God by nature. We We don't receive God's word. And we're like those who cannot speak forth praise to God. We just, we do not delight to express and to be satisfied with God. And unless God intervenes, we will remain in that state. We are people uh, who are not in fellowship. We are not communicating with our God. Now, a, a deaf person may be suffering in that condition because of no fault of their own. It might be genetic, it might be because of external factors, there may be all kinds of reasons why a person uh, suffers in that way. But when scripture compares us to a deaf person, it always does it on the basis of our own culpability. So Jeremiah says that we are like deaf people because we're foolish. Ezekiel says we're like deaf people because we're rebels. The idea is that we do not hear God because we do not want to hear what God says. We are blocking him out because we're listening, we're concentrated on something else. 
And so we do not have ears to hear. And so we do not receive it. And so here, this miracle is actually showing us the transformation that uh, is meant to be brought about. That the Lord intervenes to change those who were under his judgment to become those who are experiencing his joy. Those who understand the delight of God and the blessings that he brings. When Jesus put his fingers in the man's ears he's, and he touches his tongue, he was identifying with the man's condition. When he looks up to heaven and he sighs, Jesus is identifying with the man's condition. He is interceding on the man's behalf, isn't he? He is identifying with him. It is by sighing on the man's behalf that the cause of the man's sighing is ultimately removed. What Isaiah said would happen, he said, All sorrow and sighing shall flee away, and everlasting joy will take its place. But here, Jesus, in this miracle, is removing the man's cause for sighing by himself entering into that sighing. He is bearing it himself, just as Isaiah said would be true of the servant of the Lord. Later on in Isaiah, he would describe the coming servant, the Messiah. He would say that he would be the one who carried away our sorrows. He actually bore the weight of our guilt. He actually took it upon himself because he identified with his people. And the outworking of his uh, work is, is that he brings salvation. That's ultimately what we see at the cross. Jesus identifies our, with our sorrows by bearing them himself. He identified with our sorrows because he bears the penalty of sin. And by bearing the judgment of God, he brings the blessing and the joy of God as the result, as the outcome. So we see this miracle here. Jesus heals a man who is deaf. And we're given lots of detail about the way Jesus went about it. Jesus showed his identifying, his compassion with this man. But it's meant to highlight something of the work of God. That he causes those who are under judgment to come to experience new life to experience the blessing of God because of the compassion of God who comes to save. That's why this miracle is mentioned here. But then we're also told about the reaction of the, the miracle. After Jesus healed the man, uh, he charged the people not to say anything to anyone. This is something that we've highlighted before in Mark's gospel, that Jesus does tell people not to tell anyone. And partly because he doesn't want barriers to his teaching ministry. Partly because he doesn't want his ministry to be misunderstood as simply a healing ministry. But Jesus, as he is telling this uh, to the people, they all the more with zeal proclaimed what Jesus was doing. But notice what they say. They say that what he does is he does all things well. That's their assessment on his healing. He does all things well. He healed this man. He restored him. He made him as he ought to be. This man who could not hear can now hear. This man who could not speak can now speak openly. They were astonished beyond measure. What does that even look like? To be astonished beyond measure. To be astonished beyond measure is when someone is amazed by something. But it never gets old. 
The more it's talked about, the more it is satisfying. It is not something that descends in excitement and it's no longer important in a couple of days. This is something that is still gripping. It's still something that is exciting. It never gets old. And so it is, uh, as they think about what Jesus has done, they were delighting in it because he has done something good in restoring this man's condition. But their assessment is actually more true than they realize. Just like Caiaphas, who predicted uh, as they spoke about Jesus' own death, the words take on a meaning beyond what they even understood. And that seems to be true here uh, of these people when they assess that Jesus does all things well. Jesus not only restored this man's condition, but he does all things well because he is doing the works of God. We talked there about, uh, when we were singing from Psalm 33, about how God created all things by the power of his word. And when God created everything, he created it good. And when God brings new life, when he brings about a new creation, it is also the work of God that is good. And so the same people here who are describing Jesus' work of healing the man as good, it is true because ultimately it is the work of God uh, being realized. As much as these people were amazed that this man who could not hear now could, we should be people who marvel at the fact that God brings new life or transformation or regeneration in the lives of sinners. That those who were at one time not living for God, who were not delighting and worshiping in God, come to a place where they delight to do so. Where they come to marvel at God's grace. That they are now devoted to God and they live for his glory. That should cause a person to marvel that God loved me and gave himself for me. It should bring forth this idea of being astounded uh, or astonished beyond measure. It is an even greater transformation uh, of God in the working of a person's soul, causing them to now sing of God's greatness openly. Is that true of you this morning? Are you someone who has come to delight in God's work? Are you someone that has heard God's word and receive it by faith? Even when you think about a deaf person, a deaf person knows something's missing. A deaf person knows that they're not experiencing the good because they recognize they lack something that others have. They can't receive and communicate at the same level that others are. And even if you find yourself this morning at a place where you can't say that you believe in these things, you should at least recognize that the good has not been realized. That there is something better that could be realized. And if you're at that point where you realize that there's something better, that God who does all things well, then you should be looking for that God, seeking God to show himself to you that he would reveal himself to you by his spirit so that you would delight in Christ. And that's what Jesus tells us. He tells us to seek him, to call on the name of the Lord, and we will find him, to knock and the door will be opened unto us. But if we can ourselves say that we have heard these things, 
Let us be people who marvel at it. That at one time in my life, God didn't mean much. Something has happened that now my life is centered on God. That change was not minimal. That was God at work. And when you look at people around you, you look at the lives who have been touched by God's spirit. It is something that should cause us to marvel. Every time we hear someone profess faith, we shouldn't look at that and say, small potatoes. We should say, this is something to rejoice in. Someone who was mute can now sing. Someone who was deaf can now hear. And it's a work of God's grace. It's a fulfillment of God's purposes. And we should continue to rejoice in it. As we live out our lives, this should be the way that Christians look at all of life. From the perspective that God works all things well. Even when we're going through hardships and trials, we are to look at it trusting that in the end it'll prove to be the case that our God does do all things well. And as the psalmist was telling us, how do we do that when, when it seems like God's kindness is far from us, when it seems like things aren't going for us? It's by meditating on the works of God. It is by knowing that Jesus identified with sinners that he showed compassion on them by bearing their sorrows himself. By meditating on the cross, we can trust that God does do all things well. And we live with that hope, knowing that it will be proven true in the end. So when we look at this miracle of Jesus healing a deaf person, it is highlighting the works of God that are to be marveled at. And it causes us to examine ourselves. Am I someone who is deaf? To God's word with no interest in what God says or am I someone who is delighting in what God has done and how he has revealed himself to us that's what Isaiah was celebrating all sorrow and sighing shall flee away and everlasting joy shall remain let's pray Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about the miracles of Christ, that they would uh, point us in terms of understanding his work. Help us, Lord, to understand that we are people that are called to live in response, but we are in need of your spirit to work within us. Lord, help us then not to be hardened or indifferent to what you have done, but to be people uh, who rejoice ultimately. Go before us and give